among the Greeks and Romans, back in the time of Jesus, the name Paideagogos was applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and the morals of young boys belonging to the upper class. These slaves were given authority over these boys, and they were treated the same as their own sons, sons of a slave, even though one day they would become the master of the house They were made to endure the instruction, the discipline, uh, and the discipline of their slave teacher. These padeagogos, which is the Greek term, which I guess would be translated into pedagogue, although I don't use that word and maybe many of you don't use that word either. These padeagogos, we'll refer to them so you get familiar with that Greek term, were to teach these boys to be men. They were in charge of giving them an education as well as instructing them on how to behave. But they were more than just a teacher. They were like a chaperone. The boys were not allowed uh, so much as to step out of the house without them before arriving at the age of manhood. And they were a constant reminder of the rules that they were to follow and the authority of their paideagogos, who could inflict discipline when they broke the rules. These guardians served these boys and these families uh, only for a time. And when these boys came of age, they would put on the toga or the robe of adulthood and walk freely without the need of a guardian. Today in our passage, we hear Paul talk about the paideagogos, He says, so then the law was our guardian, our law guardian, until Christ came. As we we look at just the first two words, he says, so then, or meaning in the same way. And just like I just took you kind of through the historical context of what this person was in the life of a family, this slave teacher, Paul wants us to understand and, and think about the law as a guardian, just like these guardian of children. Paideia actually means child, and agogos literally means to lead. So these were leaders of children. And they were put in their lives for their good. The law, then, in the same way, becomes put in our lives for good, to become a guardrail for us. And we are under its authority and its power so that it will teach us And it will keep us on track. It will keep us pointed towards Christ. That's the purpose of the law. That's the purpose of these paideagogos, to keep them on track. Now, when I think about the law and its place in our life, I think that mankind in general knows more about living under the law than they know about living without it. So this law... This law that is meant to teach us. What does it teach us? Josh explained it to us last week in the, in the text that precedes this. The guardian, the law, the law guardian was given because of transgression. It taught us what sin was. And it taught us more than that. It taught us that every inclination and desire of our heart was evil all the time. We couldn't help ourselves. In fact, when the law was added... It made us want to sin even more. I remember last week you talked about the red button. 
which is still stuck in my head, you know. There's a red button there. It's like, I wonder what happens if I push that. <laughs> and that's, that is what the law did for us. It said, don't sin. And we were fixated from then on. Well, what if I, what happens if I do that? Maybe I want to do that. But I'm told that I shouldn't do it. Um, Listen to, to what Luther says about the law. He says, the time of the law is when the law exercised me. Of course, he said it in the King James. He said, exerciseth me and tormenteth me or torments me with heaviness of heart. It oppressed me, bringing me to the knowledge of sin and increasing the same. Here the law is in its true use and its perfect work, which a Christian often feels as long as he lives. That's the law. That's the guardian. That's what it's for. But that's just the first five. What's what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The first seven words. And so I'm not going to focus, uh, and I can't focus anymore on, on the law and telling you what it's for, other than it, that it was there as a guardian. Because these next three words that come in that passage, man, when I was studying this, it just captured my heart. And maybe it would capture your heart as well as you see these next third un, three words, until Christ came. And maybe it's because I'm, we're in the middle of Christmas, and everywhere I look, I see a nativity, and I, I, I love that. I love that because it points my heart towards Christmas and his arrival, that, that Christ has come. That's what we celebrate together, right? And so when I read this passage here in Galatians, just randomly, and we end up on December 24th, Christmas Eve, and I read the words until Christ came. I go, wow, that, this must be what this whole passage is about. Yeah, the law was a guardian. The law was a guardian. But the reality that Christ has come is overshadowing this. I don't want to talk about the law guardian anymore. I just want to talk about Christ coming and so that's what we're going to do today. The law guardian had an expiration date, just like the Paideia Gogos. And a time came when the child no longer needed his guardian. And a time has come when we no longer need our guardian. Why? Why did Christ come? It says there in the end of that first verse, in order that or so that we might be justified by faith. Justified by faith. What does that word mean, justified? It's a legal term that, re that, that refers to the removal of guilt, the removal of sin by applying or declaring someone to be righteous. It's, it is like the charges against us have been dropped, like we've been exonerated, but not because we were proven innocent, but because someone who was innocent stood in our place and took the penalty and therefore... Christ came to do that, and we can be justified. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. He begins with these words, but now, signifying a change that has happened. But now faith has come. The object of our faith, Christ has come. The seed promised to Eve, the seed promised to Adam has been revealed. And we can believe, we can place our hope and our faith and our trust in the promised one who will save his people from our sins. 
And if you've never done that, if you've never believed and put your faith and your trust in Christ, if you've never looked to Him as your Savior, that call is going to go out today. It always goes out. Always since Christ came. Now that message, that good news has been proclaimed and it will be proclaimed today. So now we are free from the authority. We're free from the power of our law guardian because the preaching of the gospel makes the law guardian obsolete. Now, I think about the word obsolete. I think about technology, right? Technology goes obsolete so quick. Here's a great example. Who has ever gotten a new computer after you've had an old one for way too long, right? And you, you, you get it, you go through the, the, the startup process, you put the language that you want in there, you put your Wi-Fi, you know, connect to your Wi-Fi, and then you're just going, right? You're adding applications, you're transferring over all of your documents and stuff, and you're using your new computer, right? And you're loving it. And then for some reason, you got to go back to the old computer, right? Maybe you left a file on there or something, and you push that power button, and you just wait. And that little bar just takes four, and you're just like, oh, you just want to drop kick the thing and throw it away as soon as you can, right? Because it is obsolete. You don't want that anymore. And I think about that, and, and I'll say that uh, as the last thing that I'll say about the law guardian. It's that same feeling of obsolescence. The law is obsolete for those who are in, have faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that we see, right? The first effect of those who have faith in Jesus Christ is that they are no longer captives, that they're no longer imprisoned, they are no longer under the tutelage or the tutoring or the instruction of the law. Listen to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. Beautiful passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. Now just for a moment before I even dive into that, just notice the change that happens as we read this verse. The, the message that is being proclaimed, the good news to the poor, that, that no longer that they're going to be brokenhearted, that they're going to have liberty from captivity, that prison doors are going to be opened, that the year of the Lord's favor is proclaimed, and that the vengeance upon their enemies is, is coming to comfort them, to grant them who mourn a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, an oil of gladness instead of mourning, garments of praise, that they'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. What a huge transformation. The first time Jesus begins his ministry and enters into a temple, or the first time when he begins his ministry, and the first time he enters in the temple, after uh, beginning his public ministry, he's handed the scroll from Isaiah, and he reads this. He reads this in Luke 4.18. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. 
Jesus comes to set captives free. Captives of sin, captives under the law. That's the first thing that we see as we continue now uh, to verse 26. For in Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Notice the change. We have a change here from we and our. Those are, the, those are the, what we see there. The law was our guardian. We might be justified. We are no longer under the law to the very personal you. Paul is speaking generally about humanity, and now he's speaking specifically about them, about the Galatians. It becomes very personal. Also notice the, the word for at the beginning, meaning because, pointing to a result. So together those are, this is what has happened to you. And then also there's another change. It's like everything changes right here. There's also another change from the past tense to the present tense. So this is what is true about you now. Okay? So what is true now that Christ has come, the second point is that we are free from the law guardian. And also, we who have faith in Christ are the very sons of God. The promise to Abraham of offspring is fulfilled when he came. As Jesus makes a new covenant in his blood. Abraham's covenant with, with God required obedience, even though it was guaranteed uh, to succeed by God's exclusion of Abraham because Abraham could not obey. God took on the responsibility so that when Abraham broke the covenant, and he did, Christ comes as the seed of Abraham and fulfills that covenant with God perfectly. And this should, this should really make us sit up and pay attention because this has never happened before. The covenant was given and we waited and we waited and we waited till someone could fulfill it perfectly. And it only happened once. It only needed to happen once. And it did. The significance that Jesus, that the significance of Jesus is that through him the promise of a people as vast as the stars of the sky and as numerous as the sand of the sea is finally possible for Abraham. Through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus who redeems a people. That word redeems means to buy something back, to purchase something, right? Listen to Titus 2.11, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Uh, we'll read 11 through 14. For the, the grace of God has appeared. Who is that grace? It's Jesus. This is what we're talking about this morning. When he appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And noticing the next word. And training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled. We don't need the paideagogos pi pi anymore. We have someone else who can train us now. He, uh, so... He is, he's training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, we, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's coming back again, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That people is being fulfilled right now, who are zealous for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're zealous to do them because of what he has done for us. So get this. So we're, we're not just sons of 
Abraham. He didn't just say, for in Christ Jesus, now you're all sons of Abraham through faith. He says, we are sons of God through faith. The Paideia Gogos is, is, again, obsolete because he's not part of the family. He's employed by the family, but now we have been brought into a family, and there's a family relationship. There are relational consequences that guide and rule us, that teach us, right? Now, it's not just following the rules because I'm afraid of what the rule, if I break the rules, what the punishment will be. Now, I have sorrow for sin, a godly sorrow because I don't want to disappoint my father, See how that changes there? I want to honor him. It's not about rules anymore. It's about this relationship that I've been given as a son of God. Okay, now this is where it gets really crazy, okay? Maybe you think it's already been crazy to this point, but right here, verse 27, he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Hmm. You ready for this? This is great. Okay, again, he uses for or because, saying that there's a result. Notice, well, you probably won't notice this, but I'll give you this tidbit. This is the only time in the whole book of Galatians that Paul says the word baptism. This is it. We're not going to talk about baptism as, anymore as we finish Galatians. But right here, he uses the word baptism and he brings it up. And I go, why? This is, why is he bringing up baptism as he brings up the arrival of Christ? That's my question. And do these two things go together? Okay, this is fascinating. So sons of Abraham had a sign of sonship until Christ appeared. And that was circumcision. Right? And circumcision was given to naturally born children of Abraham. They received the sign. Okay? They could also receive the sign uh, through adoption right? and become part of that family, worthy of gaining an inheritance. So the sons of God have a new sign of sonship. And this new sign of sonship is how we become naturally born sons of God. Follow me here. So baptism is this picture, right, where we, where we imitate what Christ, what happened to Christ in his death, his resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection, right? For us, though, we, we, we're not being resurrected so much as we're being reborn. It's a, it's a process of death and rebirth for us. Now, <laughs> born again into Christ's righteousness as sons of God. Let me, let me go to 1 John 5.1. No, 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 no. No, no, and I didn't even put this. John 3, let's talk about Nicodemus, right? Okay, John 3, here we go. Starting in five, Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus and, he, and Jesus answers him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Why? 
because you're being taken and born into a new family, right? Connect baptism and rebirth to the, to the covenant that God is making with us, that makes us sons and daughters of God, right? Now, now let's go to 1 John 5.1. So I flip over to 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves who has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. What does it say at the beginning? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now that he has arrived, finally, it couldn't happen before, finally, now, we can be reborn into his family. And, what, and you can hear the objection already, right? As, as he's already introduced this idea of inheritance and these Jewish people are going, well, you can't be part of the family. You weren't naturally born. You're not even Jewish. And Paul is saying, no, you can because Jesus has come. And if you believe in him, you can be born again. You could be a son of God. No longer is this sign external circumcision. Now the sign is internal, that we've experienced this death and this rebirth, okay? And that's why I'm a Baptist, and that's why I refuse to baptize children. For if we are sons of God through faith and baptism or rebirth is the sign of new life in Christ, then why would I ever baptize someone who has not been born again by the Spirit, who has never exercised faith or even professed it? In the Old Testament, they, were circumcised, they circumcised their children because they were born into the covenantal family. They were born into that family. But in doing so, they circumcised many who were never transformed inwardly. They had the external mark that was meaningless. You think about Israel and you think about uh, how God at the, in Deuteronomy says that, that you are my treasured possession, you're my segula, Right? Uh, you only have I known of all the nations. And yet this people that he chose, then if you read Hosea, they wander. You read Ezekiel, they wander even farther. Hosea says, calls one of his children, Lo Ami, you're not my people. You're not my people. They had the external mark. All of those people during Hosea's time and Ezekiel's time had the mark of circumcision, but they profaned God's name among the nations. They were not covenant keepers inwardly. They were under the law. They were cursed. They were cut off from God and His promises. They were alienated, even though they were Jewish. As it did back then, it still occurs now. If we baptize people who haven't entered into that place of faith, we are helping them to, to cling to this idea of justification by works, by some religious ritual. Now, so that was the first part. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ, this little four words after that, have put on Christ, okay? I'm going to try and explain that because I think that, that this means sonship. This is related to sonship as ours becoming reborn through baptism, but also that we've put on Christ, so it means something else. Now, before I do that, uh, clearly, 
we have to define this word baptism because it doesn't seem like Paul is talking about that thing that Woodrow did, you know, back in September of actually going down to the river and letting Josh dunk you under, right? And if you want to do that, please talk to Josh. He'd love to dunk you as well. But it's, it doesn't seem like, and Paul does this. He uses the external sign of salvation, but he also points and leans real heavily on the spiritual implication of the spiritual reality of, of what baptism is. So more likely, Paul right here is, is talking about Christians being baptized in or into the Holy Spirit when we trust Christ for our salvation. It's the moment when God's Spirit comes to live within us, and this points to this internal spiritual reality. Now, why would we know that? Why would we, would we lean heavily into that understanding? Well, context. Paul is speaking about the Spirit in Galatians 3.2, Galatians 3.3, and Galatians 3.5. Also, the verb here is in the passive. This isn't something that we do. This is something that is done to us. This does not add something, a requirement, to salvation. If Paul was suggesting that, then he would be doing the same thing as those people who were saying, you should be circumcised to be saved. Adding something else necessary beyond Christ and faith alone in Christ. I actually watched a sermon this week online uh, where a guy used this passage to say that you must be saved, or you must be baptized to be saved. And I was like, mm. okay, internally, yes, I would agree with that. I do think that Christ, that we need to be reborn, right, to be a part of God's family. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're reborn. So I would say internally, yes, that baptism of the Spirit must happen. But the external sign that we practice together as a witness being obedient to Christ, that's not contingent on you being saved. Or your, your salvation isn't contingent on you doing that. Again, we would be adding to salvation. We don't want to do that. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as, many, for just as the body is one and has many members, all the members uh, of the body, though many... Are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Okay, this baptism of the spirit that he talks about. He says, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all made to drink one spirit. This baptism is the spirit's work. It is not ours. That's what, that's what Paul is talking about. Those who put on Christ are those who lay aside the old clothes of the law and put on Christ's new robes of righteousness. Okay, now let me just take a deep dive, right, into baptism and try and say, well, what is this, what is the, the meaning of have put on Christ and what's the significance of that? What does that mean? So I believe that Paul is bringing baptism into the conversation for the sake of the Judaizers, okay? He's not cutting them off and saying, you guys are terrible because you're leading these people astray. No, he still has a heart for them. He still wants to reach them. So he goes back. He goes back into the Mosaic law. He goes back into their tradition. He brings up baptism because he knows that the baptism, or what they call the mikvah, was important to Jewish people. And the mikvah was, was 
instituted in Leviticus 15 for the priest as they would come to do the sacrifices and they had a big giant laver there, big hand washing station, right? And they'd go in there. I don't know if they had a foot pedal to get the thing going, but they would wash their hands and get going. There were also uh, ceremonial laws for them about washing their whole body as well. So before they mediated for the people, the sacrifices for God in the tabernacle, they would do this. The priests would do this. However, when they built the temple, then suddenly everybody's going into the temple, right? Not into the Holy of Holies, but everybody's entering in. So people, Jewish people started to make these mikvah pools. They would make them in their homes, likely in their basement, if they had basements. Uh, and what it was, was a, it was a pool of water. It had stairs on one side, and it had stairs on the other. And they would walk through the waters down the stairs into the waters, and up the other side as a way of journeying through, uh, through kind of a, a way of purification. But the word mikvah is, has a deeper meaning than just purification. The word mikvah in the Hebrew means, has these words associated with it, abiding, gathering together, hope, linen yarn, plenty of water, or a pool. And what I want to point you to is that word that seems to be way out of place, which is linen yarn. Why is that in there? The idea behind the word mikvah and the other root words that surround that word is this idea of intertwining. That, that the, the, the process was supposed to, it was supposed to intertwine or line up their hearts with God's heart wasn't just about purification. Now, they were also encouraged that the, the, the mikvah pool, this baptism, was to be done in living water, which meant it was flowing water. So when John the Baptist appears, you know, as the forerunner of Christ, proclaiming the king is coming, in Isaiah 40, the, you know, every mountain made low, every low place, every, every hindrance removed because the king is coming, Right? This voice crying in the wilderness. As he comes, he actually baptizes in living water, flowing water, this baptism for repentance. And what does he say in Matthew 3? He says, one is coming after me who is greater than I, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The fire is not a good thing there, okay? That's salvation and judgment, okay? But notice, baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is something deeper, right? Because that's what we need. A baptism that is eternally effectual and internal because the object of, that we're passing through is the true living water that truly unites us. And now that Christ has come, the, pa, uh, the padagogos has expired. Now we can be sons of God, baptized into Christ, and we've put on Christ. We've literally been immersed in him. You get the picture of when you see someone baptized, they come up out of the water, and the water is just coming out of them, right? Jeremiah 2, 13, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And if you'd out themselves cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They built these mikvah pools. And then Jesus says to the woman at the well, 
Whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. And Jesus himself says in John chapter 7, let me just go to that real quick. John 7, 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, the scripture has, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Born again, robed in his righteousness. Everything that came before that were just shadows, just dim copies that pointed to the real thing. And now the real thing has come until Christ has arrived. And now that he has, everything is different. The picture of baptism is one of death and resurrection. Here it's similar to taking off clothes and replacing them with a new garment. Baptism is dying to our old self and being reborn into a new life as natural-born sons, a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away and all things are new. And then he says this verse, which is often detached and used by itself, but this is still talking about that baptism. Still talking about that baptism, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Okay, so what he's saying, the third effect, now that Christ has come, now that Christ has come, not only are we free from the guardian of the law, not only are we sons of the living God, the third effect is that now we who have in faith in Christ, there is no longer any distinction or superiority or advantage of one type of person over another. Rather, there is unity. Unity like never happened before or ever will happen again. These Jews that were troubling the Galatians, Paul is saying to them, they are not superior to you. They have no great advantage over you because of their heritage. At one time, they did. At one time, they did. But until Christ arrived, but now that he has arrived, you can be an equal member of the family of God. Now, again, like I said, this, this verse is often pulled out and misused. Um used out of context to defend things like egalitarianism or transgenderism or sexual gender, gender identity or racial issues or classless societies or climate change or whatever else you want to do. They use this verse, and it is horrific use of Scripture because the context that Paul is, 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 is using this verse in is specifically addressing those who have been baptized into Christ. This is true of those who have put Christ on. There is oneness for them. Never in his mind would he be advocating some kind of wholesale cultural societal reform, nor would he be thinking about how Christians are to relate to the world. He's talking about what's true for them. And he's addressing these three distinctives that were established in, in creation this difference between Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. Now, I'm not going to go into how those are established in creation, but trust me, they are. Okay, the, but what's interesting is that these three distinctions were part of, ancient, of the ancient Jewish tradition, and it's even part of their tradition today, okay? So if I read from the Jewish daily prayer book, Hasadir Hashalem, Ha. 
Shalem. The prayer book, this is a prayer book, and it has this benediction in it there. This is not Brady's benediction today, thank the Lord, okay? And it begins as most blessings do. Barakatah Adonai Elohenu Melech HaOlam. Blessed be thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. And then it adds this. Who has not made me a heathen Gentile, who has not made me a slave, and who has not made me a woman. There's a footnote in that prayer that says, if you are a woman, you are to pray, who has made me according to thy will. But Paul is addressing these distinctions. Again, he's bringing these traditions to bear on these Jewish people who want to hold on to the law. They want to hold on to, to their tradition. And he's saying, he's saying, you have used the law and this idea of uncleanness to justify discrimination. But the gospel rejects all of these distinctions. It tears down the dividing walls created by the law. And Paul is answering the question, who can be united with Christ? He's just talked about baptism. He's just talked about you've become sons of God. And he's moving to this point where he's going to talk about them being sons of Abraham. Who can become united with Christ? Who can become a child of Abraham? And Paul is saying it's not ethnicity, it's not circumcision, it's not social status. When you are clothed in, re- in Christ, regardless of sex, class, race, age, he is, that person is, together with all the saints in Christ Jesus and is thus entitled to all the family, that all that the family membership grants him. We read in Romans... Eight. So it's, you know, he addresses natural birth, but he also, I, I think he's, uh, in Romans, he addresses even adoption. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, slavery, the padea gogos, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Man, what a promise. The other thing is that uh, besides this, the distinctions for, for getting into the family, it says once we do get into the family, it means that there are no favorites. Now, in our family, and Isaac can tell you, he's here today, that uh, I used to tell my kids, you're my favorite. And they would go, what? You can't have favorites. I could say, yeah, I can, because you're all my favorites. You're my favorite, Isaac. You're my favorite, Carmen. You're my favorite, Hannah. Of all the Hannahs, of all the Carmens, of all the Isaacs, you are my favorite. And inside God's family, we are uniquely united to one another. Right? Faith alone unites people without regarding their differences, especially their external differences. It doesn't look at that. So don't fall prey to the social ideologies that they claim, they claim to bring unity, but all they bring is disunity, right? It's a big fail. It always is. It may sound intelligent. It may sound super cool, but it's a big fail because nothing but Christ, the Prince of Peace, 
can make us joint heirs according to the promise. And it's only in this kingdom family that all these distinctions fade away. They, yes, they, the, our diversity makes us, it, there's a beauty in that. And it, it makes us unique, but it's meaningless here as merit and class and pedigree and heritage and reputation and intelligence and body shape and beauty and popularity and wealth and every other thing that divides us vanishes like a mist that the sun burns away. That's the family that we get to be brought into. This verse here means that all, everyone, it doesn't matter who you are, you have to come in the same way There's not a Jewish way to be made right. And there's not a Gentile way or a Greek way to be made right with God. All must be baptized into Christ by faith, repenting and believing in the death of Christ on the cross as the only way to pay for our rebellion against a holy God. One way for all. Doesn't matter who you are. We're called to come to Christ and to come in faith. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. G.K. Chesterton says, this Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. But Jesus himself says in John 10, I am the door. That narrow door that I mentioned that I said is the way that leads to life, I am that door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out like sheep who find pasture. So the last verse, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, if if you are Christ, if you belong to him, if you are baptized, born again in Christ, if you have faith, if you've put him on, if that's true about you, then Paul restates what he said in Galatians 3.7. Know then that those of faith are the sons of Abraham. It means that you can be the fulfillment, part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham of being a sperma, an offspring, a seed. And if you're an offspring, then you are an heir worthy of an inheritance according to the promise made to Abraham. You are now a part of that restored Israel. So when the Bible talks about Israel, you are a part of that restored Israel, a people of every tongue and tribe and nation, taught by the law, yes, but redeemed by God, You're one who trusts, one who believes, one who exercises faith in Christ alone. In Galatians 3.18, Paul has already referred to this inheritance. He says, for if the inheritance came by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. It doesn't come by the law. It comes through the promise, and his name is Jesus. Did you? I did say inheritance. Yes, I did. A new and better covenant with better promises than given to Abraham 
are given to his seed through the promised seed Christ who has arrived, who was born of a virgin, who was born in a small, inconsequential Middle Eastern town, born in a dirty, smelly barn, kind of like this, born among uh, uh, gossip and scandal. He was born in weakness, born in the form of a man, born to be a servant, born to live out the law perfectly so that he could give us the gift of righteousness, born because we broke the law. And we needed to be redeemed through his murder on a Roman cross. So I got really excited this week about Jesus arriving. And I couldn't believe that that was in our passage this week. That we're freed from from the law. That we're, we're made sons of God. Baptized into Christ. And that all this beautiful thing that, that draws us together and makes us one, so unique. Nothing else in the world can do this because he came. And so I wanted actually to go into a deep dive into all the things. I feel like Paul gave us three things here this morning that, 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 are, that are really cool and really awesome, but that's not where it ends. In fact, well, if I did go into more... I would start dabbling into the sermons that are going to come in the next couple of weeks in January and February, and they're amazing, right? Because I just want to give you just like a, like a snapshot of the things that he goes into, because I can't help myself, right? Because he came, he further explains why we are heirs of God. What is that inheritance? It goes back to me thinking about Psalm 2 when he says, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. That's us. Christ's inheritance given to him by God. But we get to experience that as sons of God. And we, have, we enjoy this Christian community, this redeemed family. Okay, that's just one thing. Then he goes on and talks about a knowledge of God, that we have this knowledge of God. And all these passages in the Bible, and maybe you, you remember them where it says that you don't need a teacher anymore, right? And I always, think that, I always thought that was dumb. It was like, no, we need teachers. I need to go to college. I had somebody, when I was in seminary, say, you don't need to go to seminary. You have Christ as a teacher. I was like, yeah, but I don't know Greek and Hebrew. I don't, I don't know theology. I need someone to teach me. They're like, no, you don't need that. You have Christ. And I was like, okay, but I still feel ignorant. I don't feel equipped. Um, but what does that mean, that we now have a knowledge of God, right? He, he goes on to talk about, he'll go on to talk about how we have the freedom from the power of sin, Yes, the presence of sin is still in our lives because we still live in these fleshly bodies, but the power of sin has been extinguished and it no longer has power over us. Then he goes on to talk about how the Spirit produces fruit that's so vastly different from anything that the world can produce in our lives, right? And then he he talks about a ministry among God's people, a work that really matters for all eternity. Those are the things that we're going to talk about in the next couple weeks. And I'm excited. And it's all because Christ came. Now, I said that the call would go out this morning. I believe the call goes out all the time now. That the gospel message has been released and it is redeeming people. And so the question, if you have been called to believe, I can answer that for you. The answer is yes. You have been called to believe You've heard it today. The question then is not, have you been called, but have you heard? Do you hear him? 
Has God made you alive? Has he wakened your dead heart today? Has he, if, if you're hearing his calling and your heart is desiring to repent of your sin, to believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins, then the, 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 the thing you should do is do it. You got to do it. You've been called and you're hearing, so do it. Follow. Respond. And we're going to sing some more Christmas songs, and it's a perfect time for you to, to cry out to God in faith, to say, to say God, save me. Save me. Man, this is, this is Christmas. What a, what a great time to receive God's gift of faith. I mean, actually, today, every today is the best time to become a son of God through faith in Christ. So I'd encourage you, don't let today end without saying yes to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, message. Thank you for uh, your son uh, and, and, and salvation and everything, God, that we can't, we can't even comprehend all the things that are now available to us because you came. And Lord, I pray that that would fill our hearts with, with inexpressible joy today. God, I pray that that would, would fill our, our minds with wonder as we think that, that what, there's more. There's more here. And Father, I pray that you would continue to transform us more and more into the image and the likeness of your Son. Thank you for this family that you've placed us in. We desire to honor you in all that we do all that we say, and all that we are. Because you are our God, you are our Father. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.